Welcome to Crazy Crimes with Kara. I'm your host, Kara, and we'll be diving into a world of people who have their own brand of crazy. Serial killers, regular murderers, disappearances, unsolved mysteries, and maybe even some odd sightings of make-believe creatures. Or are they? Buckle up, buttercup. It's about to be one hell of a ride. I'm adding a disclaimer to this podcast due to the fact that people don't seem to understand that this is a true crime comedy podcast. So if that is not your cup of tea, please do not listen. I'm still going to continue to make and perform on this podcast the way that I want to make and perform on this podcast. Yes, it's informative. Yes, I will go through the details of crimes. Yes, I will poke fun at whatever I feel the need to poke fun at. If it isn't for you, don't listen. We're going to talk about some fucked up shit. We always talk about fucked up shit. Do you have any fucked up shit you want to talk about? Because I like hearing fucked up shit. Um, the fucked up shit we're talking about today is Andrew Luster. Andrew Stewart Luster, if you want to get technical about it. He was born December 15th, 1963 to Henry and Elizabeth Luster He's the great-grandson of cosmetics guru Max Factor Sr. and heir to the Max Factor Cosmetics fortune. Because I did not know what Max Factor Cosmetics was, I looked it up. They began in movie makeup, so like the standard, not like the, you know, sci-fi movie makeup shit we're used to seeing. Just regular movie makeup. Um, He is given credit for giving starlets their signature looks, such as Lucille Ball's red curls and false eyelashes and Joan Crawford's hunter's bow with her heavily overdrawn lips. So, like, the little tiny curvature at the center of your upper lip was considered a cupid's bow, so he made hers extremely large to call it a hunter's bow because cupid carries that little tiny bow and arrow. Um, in 1991, Procter & Gamble purchased Max Factor Cosmetics for $1.5 billion. So, hence the trust fund, air, huge money thing they've got going on over there. Um, so, Procter & Gamble basically pulled it off the shelves in the U.S. and only sold it overseas. It's still predominantly sold overseas, but you can buy anything online. But they sold it to a company called Cody, C-O-T-Y, in 2015 for $12 billion. And they relaunched it in 2018 with a expansion from the original, I would say. But that gives a quick rundown about what he's the heir of. Because he's a piece of shit. He's an heir to the throne of hell, in my opinion. But... He was raised in Malibu, and he attended Windward School in Los Angeles. After graduating, he attempted going to a college for a little while, but his uh, needy ass couldn't make it. And because he couldn't make it, he dropped out. So when he dropped out, he just decided he was just going to live his life of leisure, little trust fund playboy, douche nozzle type, you know the type. Um, He moved into a $600,000 cottage on the beach of Muscle Shoals, California, to live on his $1 million trust fund. This put 
further strain on his family ties because he had a very layabout lifestyle and was considered a bum by most accounts of his family anyway. And he would much rather pursue his other hobbies, surfing and partying and filmography and women. So when it came to recording, Lester was actually ahead of his time. He liked to video record everything. He always had his camcorder with him. So he was a vlogger, essentially. We're going to call him a vlogger, but he's a douchebag. So this may get quite long, just so you know. I'm not sure how long it's going to be, but it may get quite long because I actually have a lot of information. So in 1996, Andrew Lester meets Tanya Doe. Tanya was 23. She flew into Santa Barbara, California from Arizona to spend a week with her sister, Lisa. The first night, Lisa takes Tanya out to the bar scene to have a fun night. No big deal. While on the dance floor, Lester approaches Tanya with a glass of water. He makes light conversation, and then Lisa joins them. So after he spoke with both girls, he convinced them to join him at his table for a couple drinks, and they comply. After talking for a long while, Lisa tried her best to get Tanya to leave because it was getting extremely late and they were both very drunk. And Tanya opts to stay and continue talking and drinking with Lester, who she found charming and sophisticated because he is considerably older than she is at the ripe age of 23. So most girls, you know, you're like, ooh, this is a man in his 30s. He's not like the men. In my age bracket, he has his shit together. You know, that's that's our female logic. Like, I want a man with my sh his shit together. This is what I'm looking for. Female logic. I'm there. I've done it. No big deal. Um, so, because he droned on and on about him, uh, and the fact that he was a director of small projects and had boasted about his wealth, that put Lisa's guard up. And Lisa finally left Tanya with Lester and headed home because she was like, Tanya's not giving in. She really likes this dude. I'll let her do her and we'll go from there. So now Tanya and Andrew are alone. And, you know, honestly, sisters do what sisters do. She's like, hey, you're feeling this dude. And I think he's kind of creepy, but, you know. You do you. I get it. So she does leave them alone. And Andrew invites Tanya to go back to his place, have some of his world famous margaritas and have like an after party. We'll say just the two of them. So they jump in his SUV. They head to Muscle Shoals from Santa Barbara and they get to his cottage there. He's like, hey, Phone's over there. Call your sister. Let her know where you're at, that you're safe. And I'll go in here and start making the margaritas. So Tanya does. She calls Lisa and leaves her a message saying, hey, I'm X, Y, and Z. I'll be home tomorrow, basically. So Andrew Lester comes back in says, hey, these have a special ingredient in them. And Tanya's like, oh, yeah? What's your special ingredient? And he's like, liquid X. 
So a little rundown on Liquid X before we continue any further with the story. Liquid X is better known as GHB or the date rape drug. Um, not to be confused with Ruhypnol. Um, it's colorless, tasteless. In small doses, it can increase euphoria the same way as ecstasy. But in larger doses, it can produce a coma-like state. And it only stays in the system for about 12 hours, so it's almost untraceable. So thinking they're just going to have a good time, Tanya's like, yeah, I'll take the margarita because liquid X means ecstasy. You know, we, I've got this. She wakes up the next morning and she has no memory of anything prior to drinking that margarita. And she's confused. She's fully dressed. She's laying on top of Lester's bed. She has a severe hangover type thing going on where she has a really bad headache. She feels super nauseous. She's just not feeling it. So Lester comes in and he brings her breakfast. And when she asks him about the night before, he tells her that she passed out a few minutes after drinking the margarita and he put her in his bed and he slept on the couch. So she's like, damn, this guy's a gentleman. Like I got me a man in here that didn't try and sleep with me while I was drunk. And, you know, oh man, these older guys really know where it's at. And it continues to charm her. So over the course of the next week, when she's supposed to be with her sister visiting, she spends most of her time with Lester. And he continues to try and woo her. He's taking her on super expensive dates. He's buying her gifts, taking her sightseeing. Like He develops an interest in her life as in taking over it. Like he consumed almost her entire trip. So after her week in California is coming to a close, she isn't ready to leave. And she really explains that to Lester and says that she thinks that she's in love with him. And she isn't ready to leave him either. So they make a plan. Tanya flies back to Arizona, rents a moving trip, packs all of her belongings, and returns to Muscle Shoals to begin living with Lester. So from the beginning of their relationship, on the first night she entered Santa Barbara's bar that she attended to the point she moves in with him is about three weeks. She's known this man three weeks since she moves in with him, which is odd, but I'm not going to say it doesn't happen because I had a high school teacher who knew her husband for a total of seven days before she married him. So, you know, to each their own, you do you, but I'm over here like I'd be dating somebody for years and won't even let him move in. What the fuck? Um, so she moves in and gets everything situated. So during the four months that Tanya and Lester lived together, he only made one request. Do not enter a certain room in the house. Evidently, this room contained his filming and editing equipment. And he did not want these items disturbed because of their sensitivity. And Tanya agreed. She's like, yeah, I'll leave your shit alone. You're good. So the first two months were great for her. They were the perfect honeymoon stage. She was having a good time. They were laying out on the beach. They were surfing. They were partying. They were hanging out with friends. So they were having a big old time out there on the beach in California. But then after that two-month period, Tanya feels like he's distancing himself from her and their relationship. He would refuse to answer questions when she asked him where he was going or when he would be returning. She would lay awake at night, tossing and turning, wondering where he could be or who he was even with. 
And then if she would ask questions the next day when he returned, she was either met with complete and total evasiveness, like dodging the questions entirely, or just downright anger that he couldn't have a life outside of their relationship and that he was being smothered by her. So textbook narcissist, people. Textbook narcissist. Blame deflection. Oh, you're mad at me? I'm not allowed to have a life because you want to sit here and do nothing and blah, blah, blah. You know, textbook narcissist right there. So one sleepless night, um, she is tossing and turning and decides to get up out of bed. And she enters that one room she agreed that she would not enter when she moved in. She didn't really find anything uh, in the actual room itself until she entered the closet of said room. Because what was in the room was what he said. It was like filming equipment, TVs, blah, blah, blah. So she opened the closet and inside of that closet, the walls were like a collage of photos of women that were like scantily clad or nude. So mostly like bra and panties, bikinis, things like that. And she started thinking about it and she's like... I've never seen this motherfucker with a camera. She's looking at him. She's like, Ew, what the fuck? These are, these are still frames from him videoing people. Like, this is weird. So she was super disturbed. And when he returned home, she questioned him about those photos. And he flew into a rage about how he didn't know the women and that she shouldn't pry through his personal things. And that it was none of her business and all that shit. Again, textbook narcissist, he's deflecting that blame. So, at this point in the relationship, Tanya has decided to leave. But she's having to find a place and this, that, and the third. You know, no no easy feat, especially, I'm sure, in California. In 96, I don't know how things were. Um, but, you know, it, it's a feat nowadays, so I can imagine in California. Plus the cost of rent, fuck. Um, so before her plan was able to be put into action, she still had to live there. She still had to deal with him on a consistent evasiveness and whatever, but he was gone more frequently. So she didn't have to deal with him quite as much, but right before she leaves, she enters that room again and she looks at the collage and sees that her own photo has been added of her in a bikini laying on the beach. And she knows for sure that that was taken from a video that he hadn't taken a photo. Um, so she rips it down in a fit of rage and rips a few other photos down with it. Um, and then Lester comes back and sees that she has ripped it down. And he told her if she ever touched the photos again, and he would kill her. So a few days later, when Lester was out of the home, with the help of Lisa, John, which is... Tanya's new boyfriend, who is a mutual friend of Lester and Tanya's that helped her get the courage to leave and see that she was being treated wrongly. Um, it started out as friendly companionship and developed as some things do. And in this instance, I think it was a viable instance that cheating should be not condemned. But um, so she was able to pack her belongings quickly and move into an apartment in Santa Barbara with the help of a couple people, Lisa, John, and a couple other friends. 
And all this while Lester's gone. So she packed her shit. She got out as quick as she could in a couple hours. Two weeks into living in her new apartment, Tanya begins receiving hang-up phone calls. And then the calls just kind of remain silent on the other end. We're like, hello, hello, you know. Um, And then she's exiting the shower one day. And John is standing in the living room and she's walking into her bedroom and swears she sees Lester standing outside the bedroom window, but he ran when he saw her. So John goes out, he looks around, he sees nothing. He's like, there's nobody out there. Are you sure you're not just being a little paranoid? I know you're a little freaked out. It's fine. Um, because of the phone calls and whatever, she's like, I know it's him. I know it's him. And at that moment, nobody really believed her. So, because of she is at this point paranoid of him, uh, and it's not an illogical reason, it's a logical reason to be paranoid. She starts leaving the windows shut and locked, and the curtains pulled for fear of him seeing into her home or seeing her with John. Because he was a mutual friend, they had decided to keep their relationship really on the down low because they didn't want to incite any rage from Luster. They didn't, she didn't want that backlash on him or her either. Then we get to a hot evening where there's no AC in this apartment and Tanya and John are sitting around watching a movie. So she agrees to open the window just a little bit to get some of that breeze in because it's, you know, it gets stuffy in the summer like shit. It's humid. Open that fucking window. But she cracks it a little bit. She gets up to go to the bathroom um, and she walks through the kitchen after returning to get a snack, we presume. And there Lester is staring at her through the window and she screams and John comes running. And the look of shock across Lester's face apparently explained it all. So John grabs a knife out of the kitchen and runs outside. But by the time he gets out there, Lester's already fleeing in his SUV. So they finally call the police because they have evidence that he had been there. Just to be told there was nothing they could do unless he was making threats or trying to have a physical altercation with them. The phone calls continued for another week and Lester decided to finally leave a note on Tanya's vehicle. He confessed his undying love for her multiple times in this note and then stated that he wanted to flee the country with her after they killed John, burned his house down. They would leave. So again, they went to the police with this note, but instead of just waiting for the police to do something, they packed their things again, and together they moved further away to stop Lester from stalking and threatening them. So they couldn't even rely on the police to do anything in this moment. So the story doesn't end there, but her story pauses there, and we'll continue with that in a little while. So we're going from 1996 to... July 14th of 2000. So bear with me where we have a little time gap. We'll fill it in in a minute. So we have 21 year old Carrie Doe and her friend David. They meet Lester and a few of his friends at a bar in Santa Barbara called O'Malley's. Lester offered Carrie water in his usual um, turn of events. Woo. And he begins his usual spill of being a director and introduced Carrie and David to his friends. Since the bar was closing, Lester offered to host an after party at his cottage. Again, seems like him to make his world famous margaritas. And everybody seemed agreeable to the arrangement. So Lester claims 
that Carrie and David climbed into the back of his SUV and began having sex. He stated he thought that it was strange since he had just met these people and they were having sex in his car. But this didn't stop the party. Everybody arrived at the cottage and continued to drink and have a good time. The next morning, Carrie woke up to the sensation, to the sensation of something warm and wet running down her face. She felt extremely sick and she was barely able to move. Uh, finally, she gathered her strength, opened her eyes, and realized she was naked and laying in a shower. A few minutes later, she was able to stand, and then Lester entered the shower with her. Because she lacked the strength and wasn't able to speak or fight, he forced himself inside her. Later, he drops her off to her campus and gives her his phone number. And a few days later, she enters the police station with the encouragement of a friend Carrie reports the rape to authorities. So good on this friend for doing this and encouraging her to report it because we all know that 95% of rape cases go unreported. So she has an amazing support system. This friend was like, hey, you really need to do this. But due to the amount of time that had lapsed between the time of the rape and the time that Carrie reports it, which is about two days, there isn't evidence anymore. And based on her description of events that she can remember, and then the inability to remember anything else, police believe that she had been drugged using GHB. So the detectives involved come up with a plan in order to get enough evidence directly from Lester himself. Carrie's arranged into a little interrogation room with a recorded phone line and a couple police officers in there to help her and coach her along. And when I say they're there to help her to coach her along, she is going to call Andrew Luster from this line in the police station where everything's going to be recorded. So they tell her to talk normal with him and somehow figure out a way to confirm the fact that he drugged and raped her. So the call goes exactly as they had planned though. She's like, what did you put in my drink? And the, these are pretty much direct quotes. And he was like, liquid X. She was like, Oh, okay. So she goes through the spiel with him and then they make a plan to see each other the next day. And she says, you don't have to drug me to have sex this time, okay? I promise. And he says, I won't drug you. So this douche nozzle of all things is like, oh, this, this chick liked it. She really liked it. He actually accused her of being enthusiastic for the three times that they had sex that night and that she wanted it. But... She ends the phone call by setting up the date um, and telling her, telling him, you know, hey, you don't have to drug me. We can just have regular sex. It's fine. But instead of Carrie showing up for their date at his cottage in Muscle Shoals, several police officers show up with a search warrant. So at first, Lester's not worried about this search warrant. He thinks they have the wrong fucking house until they're like, mm, yeah, no, this is the right fucking house. It's a search warrant for you. Fuck you. You suck. Yay. So, they go through this house with a fine fucking tooth comb. And they discover multiple weapons, firearms, butterfly knives, just illegal 
deadly weapons. They discover like 20 bottles of GHB, cocaine, marijuana, and 17 homemade pornographic movies where it looks like the female involved is unconscious, though there are hundreds of sex tapes essentially in this fucking cottage. So that day, he's officially placed under arrest, which is July 18th, 2000. So during the investigation, Tanya is contacted again. The detective in charge of the case had made notes regarding her police reports from four years prior. And when Tanya enters the police station, they requested she view a videotape that she may or may not be present in. Tanya admitted to the police that she and Lester had filmed a homemade pornographic movie early in their relationship. She was embarrassed about it, but she would view the tape and confirm whether or not it was her. When the image on the screen appeared, she was shown her 23-year-old self lying motionless on Lester's bed. And she immediately recognized herself and the dress that she had borrowed from her sister Lisa the very first night of her visit four years ago. The one that she wore to the bar in Santa Barbara. Confused, she asked the detective what was going on, and the detective told her to continue watching. So as the tape continues, she watched Lester brag about how powerful he was and how he could be a god in this setting and this, that, and the third. And then he proceeded to rape and sodomize her for the video camera, and she witnessed her very own rape that she never knew had even happened to her because that night he swore nothing had happened. He had been a gentleman. So another victim of Lester's crimes was a 17 year old named Shauna Doe. And she stated that Lester had found her on the beach and invited her in for a drink. His world famous margaritas. At least this time it didn't include a glass of water. She also did not know she had been raped until she was shown the video. Of the 14 other tapes found of unconscious women, the police could not determine who the women on the videos were or they didn't want to file charges. All of the victim victims asked the court to keep them anonymous. So hence the names Shauna Doe, Carrie Doe, and Tanya Doe. There's a reason for that. They are not their actual names, but that is what they are considered in all the court documents, all the press documents, everything. So, Lester was charged with 83 counts of rape, sodomy, oral copulation, poisoning, sexual battery, and possession of a deadly weapon. During the trial, Lester's attorney, Roger Diamond, presented the case as the victims were women looking for a payout. So, they were gold diggers or you know he had approached them and said hey we're gonna make a porno and then he didn't pay out what they wanted him to pay out and he had all of these reasonings behind why these women would want to press charges against this man and him be like hey i'll pay you if you shut up essentially is what diamond is saying that these three females that were officially pressing charges wanted um, the, the trial was set to begin in January of 2003. So he had been released on a $1 million bond and he was placed on house arrest for the duration leading up to and through his trial. 
And this is actually the first time that this is done in California history. This was typically reserved for juveniles in order to ensure that they stayed where they were supposed to stay. We all know what house arrest is. You get your ankle monitor. You're only allowed certain places. You have to call and check in. Blah, blah, blah. We know what it is. So, he's the first adult with this. Um, but, it didn't work out very well for him. So, when it comes time for his trial, Lester's nowhere to be found. Um, he had fled quickly when he realized how damning the evidence was against him because he had filmed his own unlawful acts. He fucked himself royally, and we thank God for that. So the trial begins. He's nowhere to be found, and the judge rules that the trial is to begin without him being present, so in absentia, which is another California historical first. This had never been done before. The FBI then issued a warrant for unlawful flight to avoid or prosecution, not persecution. Um, and the trial began. And Lester was convicted and sentenced. He was convicted on all of counts and sentenced to 124 years. So, in June 2003, Dwayne Dog Chapman, better known as Dog the Bounty Hunter, received information that Lester had been hiding out in Puerto Vallarta. I can't talk. Mexico. And Dog had issued a video statement on YouTube vowing to find Lester and bring him to justice after he made it to the FBI's most wanted list. Most wanted list. And we all know that Dog is from Hawaii. He travels everywhere. Very strange. But he was going to bring this piece of shit to justice. And I'm here for it, Dog. You go get that motherfucker. So, Dog enters Mexico. He brings a film crew with him, stating that he was trying to begin his own reality TV show, which we all know here in the future that he succeeded on. And they filmed the entire process of Dog and his crew catching Lester and putting him into their SUV and blah, blah, blah. But because bounty hunting is illegal in Mexico, Dog and his entire crew were arrested. With Lester included, and Lester was then extradited back to California. Dog and his crew's charges were dropped from felony kidnapping charges down to misdemeanors, but his lawyer advised him to flee the country while he was out on bond. Dog, don't go back to Mexico unless you've situated that. I don't know if you have or not, but don't go back to Mexico. So... Because of the arrests and that Mexico technically extradited him back to the United States and blah, 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 or the FBI did, I should say. The Mexican FBI was involved. I don't know what they call it there, but they were involved with our FBI and they extradited him back. But because of that, Dog was not allowed to get the bounty on Luster's head. So no reward for Dog which was a huge reward on a million dollar bond. Uh, Dog informed the media that he had been working closely with an expert in sex crimes who believed Lester's preference for raping unconscious fast, 
passive victims indicated a necrophilia tendency that could lead to murder if he was not stopped, which stated that he needed to stop him, which is why he claimed he would do anything to stop him. So Lester's back. Lester stands before the court, takes his sentence, goes to prison. So the California Court of Appeals later refused Lester's appeal due to the fact that he had been a fugitive of justice and a long-standing president holds that fugitives flout the court's authority and thus forfeit their right to an appeal. And then the California and the U.S. Supreme Court both refused to overturn this ruling. So they're like, no, you can't fucking appeal it because you ran from it in the first fucking place, you dipshit. And I'm like, yes, bitches, get him justice. But in 2009, Lester filed a petition for habeas corpus and it was granted in 2012. Now, on March 11th, 2013, the Ventura County Superior Court vacated Lester's 124-year sentence, but not his conviction. So, he's still considered guilty, but the sentence was not correct. Due to the fact that the trial judge failed to state a specific reason for imposing consecutive sentences. So, consecutive sentences run back-to-back, whereas concurrent sentences run all together. So say you're charged five years for robbery, five years for another robbery, 10 years for larceny, like Grand Theft Auto, you know. Um, So that's a total of 20 years. If they have them run concurrently, that's only 10 years because you're serving all of those sentences at one time. But if you're serving it consecutively you serve five years and then another five years and then 10 years leading to 20 little food for thought if you didn't know that um so they ordered a new sentencing hearing so on april 16th 2013 ventura county superior court reduced lester's sentence to 50 years 48 years for the rapes and those charges and two years for the drug and weapon related charges Now, two of the victims filed civil lawsuits against Lester and were awarded $40 million in total for both of them. Um, Lester subsequently sold most of his property and declared bankruptcy because he fucking sucks. Um, He's not eligible for parole until 2045 when he has served 85% of his sentence and he is currently incarcerated at Valley State Prison in Chowchilla, California. And that is the story of Lester and the Max Factor Fortune Air douche nozzle piece of shit. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to me babble on and on about how insane people are. But I really appreciate that. Please subscribe or follow on whatever your preferred listening platform is. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok. And that's Crazy Crimes with Kara. That's Kara with a K. Then join me next week to hear the newest episode of Crazy Crimes with Kara. Thank you.